Our scripture text this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I think it's intuitive to us that we know a person's final words are really significant and important. I mean, if you were to have a chance to know uh, that this would be the last time that you might see this person that you love, uh, would you not choose your words carefully and selectively and very intentionally? Last words, the last words that are given to people are hugely significant. We, we have Paul's last words here. Now, we've, had, we've read through all of Paul's words. These are his last, but consider all the words that he has shared. I mean, o- over these past number of weeks, we've looked at his promise of Christ coming in glory and power with angels and flaming fire. Uh, to bring about relief to the godly and retribution to the wicked, to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of beauty. I mean, our hopes have kind of soared over those ideas that we've heard about, that before this great day, though, in chapter 2, that there will be this rebellion, this apostasy, a falling away from faith, and as this man of lawlessness is revealed, and he will bring and bring great discomfort upon the church. We've read about how uh, that before this, even in their lives, that Paul had given word to their own suffering. They had suffered physical persecution. They were being ostracized. They were losing their jobs. They were facing confusing confusion in terms of doctrine. False teachers were being raised up. People who were idle and bringing division and, and discord in the church, uh, they were facing those things as well. And so Paul is giving these last words, and he wants to give them something some truth, a reality that would hold them faithful. He would never see them again. Actually, as I was preparing these last words, I was thinking, what would my last words to you be? If, if I were to preach the last sermon, what would it be? What would I say? What could I impart to you, the last thing said, that would help you be faithful and enduring in faith? Well, what Paul does is he prays. shouldn't surprise us. He's prayed four times now in three chapters. And Paul gives this beautiful prayer asking for God's blessing. It's really, um, uh, scholars call it a prayer wish. He's kind of articulating his heart for the people by declaring what his prayer will be. It's a beautiful prayer. He wants them to be blessed by God. But it's a strategic prayer. I want you to see that. He has an intention that he wants them to be faithful. And so he explains to them these kind of four essential ingredients that are necessary for them to continue to walk in faithfulness in the midst of trial and adversity and trouble. And they're the same for us. He's going to talk about the peace of the Lord. The Lord himself will give us peace, he says. He talks about the presence of the Lord. That Jesus Christ, mediated through his Spirit, will be among his people. He talks about following the truth of the Lord. We can never lose sight of the truth. It's always the beginning of apostasy. 
And then the grace. We need the grace, that familiar term. We need grace. So, so th these are four essential ingredients that he is leaving them with that they might be found faithful on that final day. Look with me at the peace of the Lord. Look with me at 16. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. You know, I, I so am encouraged when people tell me not just that they're praying, but how they pray. It's a way of loving one another. If we're telling people, this is how I'm praying for you. It's a way of loving them. You know, if you're married, I trust, and you're Christian, it would be essential for you to be praying together. And, and both of you pray for one another and, and let the other know how you're praying for them. Not just I'm praying for you, but if you're not married and you have friends and you pray for those friends, ask them and, and tell them, not just pray for them, but tell them how you pray for them. Encourage them with that. You know, of all the things that, that Paul is telling us that he could be praying for, he tells us he's praying for their peace. Now, they were facing issues that we face. They had health crises. They had cultural oppression. They had difficulties in life, in marriages, parenting, and the like. And yet, out of all the things Paul prays for, he prays for peace. And now, I want to make sure you understand, it's not a peace like, I just want your life calm and easy. I, I don't think it's even some inner peace that he's praying for. You know, the kind that you can get from doing hot yoga or listening to ocean sounds on Spotify. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about a divine peace that is absolutely unique. I want to explain just the nature of this peace and then where the peace comes from. The nature of the peace is that it's peace with God. Paul is praying that the Lord himself will give a peace, a peace with God. That is, that you and I could live in the chaos of that world, this world, our world, knowing that things are right with God, that we've been forgiven. We've been reconciled. We've been adopted. That you're not living with the dread that he loves me, he loves me not. You're not living with the dread that, nah, there's something behind that smile of his that I just don't trust. It's, it's a complete new relationship that God, as your father, loves you and assures you of that. That, that peace that comes when you know there's a harmony in your relationship that there's nothing unsaid and there's nothing to remove. It just flows beautifully. So I think he's praying for that. I also think he's praying for a peace with one another. Now you notice the proximity of our passage. He's praying for peace right after he tells the church to discipline those who are idle. He says disassociate with the unruly. Now don't do it in a harsh way. They're brothers. Brother, you know, Love them as brothers, but, but warn them. And disassociate if you have to. But that causes discord. And so he's praying for peace. You know, th that where Paul is willing to deal with issues. He doesn't overlook sin. He deals with them, even though it may kick some dust up. But then you're praying for peace. That's what he's praying for. But not just peace with ourselves, also peace in the chaos of the world. Listen, many of us, are quite uncertain and concerned about the direction of our culture, our life, this country. There is a peace that he wants for us. 
that transcends all understanding. It's a peace coming from this Lord. He's the Lord of peace. The Lord itself signifies the supreme worth and glory of Jesus Christ, that he is sovereignly ruling over the heavens. He has an eternal love for his church. He has good purposes. Not a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from what he wants to achieve. He will bring all things to their perfect end. That should afford us a peace. A peace in the midst of whichever way and however turbulent things become. I was reading last night Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed. Many of you have read that book. It's just a classic book. He's a 17th century Puritan. And um, here's what he wrote. Just in the opening pages, he says, a Christian is an impregnable person. He is a person that never can be conquered. Emmanuel became man to make the church and every Christian to be one with him. Christ's nature is out of danger of all that is hurtful. The sun shall not shine, the wind shall not blow to the church's hurt. For the church's head ruleth over all things and hath all things in subjection. Therefore, let all the enemies consult together, this king and that power. There is a council in heaven which will disturb and dash all their counsels. Emmanuel in heaven laugheth them to scorn. And as Martin Luther says, shall we weep and cry when God laughs? So we are at peace because he is the Lord. We're at peace. Do you know this kind of peace? You know, there are many masquerades, there are many counterfeits of peace that the world wants to offer us. Many different avenues to find peace, but they all fail. I want to remind you that the peace, if you think of peace as simply absence of conflict or just kind of controlled environment in which we're living in, there's no wars, there's no political threats, there's no more pandemic, if you think that's what peace is, it's a fool's errand. I mean, that kind, of peace, that kind of peace is presumptuous, as if nothing will occur out of the ordinary going forward. If the peace is ignorant. It's ignorant because you're not aware of the absolute dangers that lay before you in this world. If you want a picture of the world, look at Ecclesiastes. If you want a picture of the world, look at Judges. We'll look at that next. It's, it's turbulent world. I mean, it's one phone call from a doctor can change your world, can take away your peace. One change in the markets can take away your peace. Job loss, one call, and your peace is gone. And sometimes I think people, people are just ignorant about the reality of life. I mean, it's, it's like the guy paddling in a canoe down the Niagara River, and he sees, some, he sees some turbulence coming up ahead, some steam rising, and thinks maybe the heat's coming up, and he doesn't realize what's before him. There is no peace that the world can offer you like the peace that God gives. And that leads us to the source of peace. He is the Lord of peace. You see that. And he's the Lord of peace because he's the one that makes peace. Now, if you look at the Christian faith as kind of rules to follow and morals to keep, you won't understand this peace. This kind of peace comes from this restored relationship with the one who has made us. See, if you, if you just take a step back and recognize that the Christian faith is really about a relationship between the creator God and the creature. And this relationship, as you look back in the original or in the beginning pages of the Bible, it was a harmonious, peaceful relationship between God and his, his creation, his man, 
that he created the woman and all of creation. And it was, of course, in their desire to strike it out on their own, which is in all of their progeny, a desire to break away and head out on our own path, that relationship was shattered. It was shattered. And so separation came. And there the peace evaporated. But you know, God was not deterred by our sin, and he pursued them. He covered them with clothing, and he made a promise of deliverance and restoration. And the promise of this peace, of this restoration, was through a seed or a son. The son would be the Messiah. Uh, we always read about this son in, around Christmas time, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And she, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. But God had so carved that the path of peace being restored would go through the valley of the shadow of death where he would bear an ancient curse, a curse from Genesis 3. And he, upon himself, would fall our sins, our guilt, and our shame. And by his death, bearing those things, he would bring us back together with God. This is why he's the Lord of peace. Colossians says it beautifully. Paul writes, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that is not them, that is us. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the peace. And it's the Lord himself who does this. Nobody else. I love what one author wrote. He says, I want to call particular attention to the apostle's words in this place. He does not say, may the Lord of peace send his angel to give you peace. He does not even say, may the Lord of peace at the communion table, or in the reading of the word, or in prayer, or some other sacred exercise, give you peace. In all these, we might well be refreshed. But he says, the Lord of peace himself give you peace, as if he alone, in his own person, can give you this peace. He alone. Do you have this peace? I mean, many of you are troubled, you're burdened, you're anxious. Have you sought him for this peace? This world will afford you. There are many offerings to give you this peace. New relationship, new job, better friends, new location, vaccines, better. You fill in the blank. But you know, Jesus said at the end of his ministry in John 14, he says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Then he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be shaken. He gives a peace. It's only in Christ. It's through faith in Christ. Now, this appeals, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the first step of becoming a Christian. It is you, you place your faith in Christ to reconcile you to the Father so that you can be restored. You can have that harmonious relationship in which God originally intended. Paul tells us this. He says, 
Therefore, we've been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. But it's not just in entering the faith. It is also in walking in the faith that you're seeking a peace from the Lord of peace. Have you asked him for that peace? When you read the news, or you all of a sudden get anxious about the direction, do you call out to the Lord of peace and say, would you fill me with your peace? If you're facing some medical issue, if you're watching your friend or child or parents suffer? Are you calling out for peace? Give me peace that surpasses all understanding. Guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Let me not fall into despair. May I walk in peace. That's the, that's the cry of the Christian. And we also don't want to just seek this peace. We want to pursue it in our relationships. We, we want to resolve conflict. We want to be intentional about resolving conflict we may have. Listen, we are being sanctified. The Christian is being sanctified, but we still sin. We still say stupid things. Uh, we still act in selfish ways. We still speak with anger and harshness in our tone and words. I mean, in your marriage, don't be the fool who just ignores the elephant in the room, just thinking that time's going to heal all wounds. That time doesn't heal all wounds. It just doesn't. Things don't go away particularly in our marriages and our friendships and in our church, things that people don't forget. No, no, God has called us to this peace. Do you realize that peace is the mark of the new creation? This is what he came to restore. The church is to emulate to the world what heaven will be like. And peace is that mark of the new creation. That's why he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, govern your hearts, he says in Colossians 3. He says his servants were called to peace. Or in Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because you look like Christ when you're making peace. And when you make peace, be prepared to be forgiven. You, you, oftentimes we think, well, I'm, I'm going to reconcile with him. I'm going to help him get over the offense he's given to me. Be prepared to be forgiven as well. And not just to seek forgiveness. You know, we have communion coming up next week. We always, and it will be announced that we'll have communion next week. We announce it so that you can repent and reconcile. So that you can come to the table displaying that new creational mandate of peace with God and peace with each other. So, so this is what Paul's praying for. May the Lord of peace give you peace. That's what I pray for you. Give us peace here with God, with each other, but we carry that peace into a turbulent world. But notice what else he prays for. He prays that they would know the presence. They would enjoy the presence. Look with me back at the second half of, of verse 16. In verse 16 he says, The Lord be with you all. What a little... You could fly over this and not even see it. And, and, and I want to remind you, and Daniel pointed this out in our sermon review. It was so helpful. This wasn't always this way. You, the, the presence of God was dread and death. It was dread and death. I, I mean, no one can see the face of God and live. The Israelites couldn't touch the mountain upon which God was. 
Uzzah just tried to stabilize the ark when it was beginning to totter, the ark of the covenant, boom, struck dead. You couldn't go in the Holy of Holies. No one can except one time a year, a high priest with blood. You just don't walk into the presence of God. We pray for you, Carol and I, on Saturday, that none of us would come naive to worship on Sunday. We're coming before the living God. And as if it needs no preparation. That's why we send you sermon preps and getting you ready. You're coming before a living God. That is not like walking into the kitchen and saying hello to your wife. It's radically different. So when he says the peace, when he says, and the Lord be with you, the Lord of peace has transformed that from being dread to delight. But I want you to know this has always been God's plan. He always wanted to be with us. It's unbelievable. He, he creates the man and the woman to be with them. It says they walked in the cool of the day. It kind of sounds sweet. They're walking, enjoying the presence of one another. Now, of course, the sin separated them, but again, God moves right to them. And this is the point of him choosing Abraham. He chooses Abraham. Why? He wants to draw a new people, and he gives them a land, and then he wants to be with them in the land. You see this in the tabernacle. He begins to display his presence on the mountain, in the tabernacle, and then permanently in the temple. But then how does he move even closer to us? In the coming of Christ. Jesus, he's Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God now with us in Christ, in the flesh. That's how John reads it in chapter 114. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God moving closer to us in Christ. But of course, Jesus ascends, but only because he sends another comforter. The spirit now that dwells within us, God moving closer to us, now dwelling within us, better than a physical presence of Christ, now the spiritual presence, Christ mediated through his spirit, now dwelling within us. That's how you know you're a Christian. The spirit of God confirms with our spirit that we're children of God. The spirit dwells within us, leading us to see sin, leading us to see the glory of Christ, sanctifying us, preparing us, and, and will remain with us until that day that God sends Christ back in fullness and glory where we will, we will what? Again dwell with God. In Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God who is with man, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. That's the presence of God. It's Eden remade better. He says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is God's plan. The whole Bible could be written about how God draws close to his people. That's the presence of God. We need this presence of the Lord in this world. We need the presence of the Lord in our life. It sustains us in trial. It will sustain you for you to call out, to ask the Lord Jesus 
to strengthen you with his presence? This is what Paul did. Paul, in one of his trials, he testifies this to this in 2 Timothy. He says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Can you imagine that? All of your Christian friends run from you like you have the plague? He says, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. The presence of the Lord at his side. He said, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Can you imagine that, the Lord? Do you, do you ever ask for Christ himself to stand by you, to support you, to cause his presence to be made clear to you in tangible ways? It removes anxiety and dread. It removes fear and frustration. You know, think about Mary at the tomb of Lazarus, or at the tomb of Jesus. It was empty. She's anxious, concerned. Where is my Lord? Where did you put him? Just Mary. It led to peace and worship. You know, we live in an over-sexed, over-satisfied, stimulated culture, over-stuffed schedules. And yet there's this acute loneliness among so many of us. You can be married and be supremely lonely. You can be single and lonely. It leads to despair and frustration. And why can't I fill the void? This is why you call out for the presence of Christ. Nobody knows loneliness like Christ. Everybody abandoned Christ. And the Father even forsook him. There is no one that can comfort like Christ. There's nobody that can provide support and encouragement by his presence like the Lord Christ. Call out to him. Ask him. Make your pre Hold me. Fill me. Change me. Ask him. This is what Paul's praying for, that they would know this, the peace from the Lord of peace. They would know the presence of Christ among them. But then third, notice what he says. He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to follow the truth of the word. This is essential for you, particularly in a decaying culture. Look at me at 17. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness of every letter of mine. It is the only way I write. What's happening here? Well, in this time, of course, uh, oftentimes an author would use a scribe or manuensis is what they were called, uh, someone that, that writes down what the author is saying, and Paul did this. You see it in many of his letters. But after, at the end here, you see Paul take the pen and he signs it himself. And usually, probably wrote verse 18, actually. So he signs his name. Now, why does he do this? Why does he, at this point, do this? Well, I think he does for a few reasons. First, I think he's trying to just give some personal affection, you know, to sign it with his own hand. It's a sign of affection. He gives a few encouraging words. The, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. He probably wrote following his signature. But I also think it's to probably add to the authenticity of the letter. There are other easy forgeries at the time, and you, you already read back with me in chapter 2, verse 2, there was some pseudo-letter that Paul warned them about, some letter purporting to be from Paul. This is trying to assure that it's not a forgery. But I would say, besides those two reasons, he signs it because he wants us to follow it as if it's his own very words. Here, here's what I want you to get. Paul is very keen for you to understand that Paul sees himself as different. 
He sees himself as an apostle who has been graced with an ability through the Spirit to write words that are from God. They're divine words. They're to be followed. You know, Paul has already said four times in this small book that we are to obey what he commands us. Paul sees that his words are being passed on. I received them from the Lord, and I'm passing them on to you. They're words of God. So four times he says that you are to obey what he commands. And notice last week he commanded them to obey this in the name of the Lord with the authority of Christ as if he was speaking. Do you notice in verse 4 of our chapter 3, he says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will do all that I've commanded. In other words, Paul is saying, I, I'm trusting Christ, that he's going to ensure you do what I just told you. It's amazing. Christ assuring and ensuring that we will do what Paul commanded. You know, Ignatius was a bishop, Syria, Antioch and second century bishop. And he said, I do not command. Paul and Peter command. I don't. They were unique. This is the apostolic tradition. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, which means out of the chair, a few times that he has done this, that is a command to be followed as a word from the Lord. Uh, in all respect, we do not follow that. There are no other apostles. They're the foundation. When some self-appointed apostle says, I've had a word from the Lord that you have to follow, we don't follow that. We only follow the apostolic tradition that's recorded in the New Testament. Now, clearly, there's, there's caution to be exercised in how we interpret Scripture, and there's caution to be exercised in how we apply Scripture. And God has given us consciences prompted by the Spirit that are helpful guides, not infallible guides, but they're helpful guides. That's what he's saying here, that we're to follow this. To what degree do you value the words that you've heard through this lesson, through all these lessons in 2 Thessalonians? Uh, have, they been, have they been good suggestions for you in life, or have they been commands that you're to follow? So even last week, when you just take that sermon on work, did it reframe your mind about going to work the next day, the difficult people, the difficult situations you would face? Did it reframe your mind? Like, I, no, I'm here to glorify God. I'm here to use my gifts for his purposes and his glory and the betterment of others. Because it, let me give you a warning. If we don't do this, this is how God changes the people. You hear the word and you do the word and you're transformed by the word into being like the word of God, Jesus himself. That's how he changes the people. The word is preached, you hear it, you change, you move, and you become incrementally changing from glory to glory. If you hear it and you don't work differently, it doesn't mean you don't fail. But if you don't intend to and move towards working differently, the word, you're, you're one who's hearing but not doing, and you're like the man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets who he is and what he looks like. You know, John Stott, uh, great theologian, very accessible really for any reader, he says, if, if the church made the Bible then the Bible is important but not indispensable. But if the Bible made the church, if the Bible formed the church, if the Word of God formed the church, then it's primary, it's essential, it governs us, is what it does. And we, we do what it says. And Paul's saying, I want you to really, the first step of apostasy is to begin to lower your valuation of the Scriptures. 
and then things become a lot more easy at living. And, and it begins to put us on a path. And you know, we are the grand-grand-grandchildren of philosophers who wanted to promote this idea that you are the ultimate authority at determining whatever truth is. It's a human construct. We've seen it in our culture in the last 30 years, even in terms of gender. You know, we see that, no, it's male and female. Well, it's really not that. Scientifically, it is, right? Chromosomes, it is, right? It, it just is, and yet, no, it's not really. Who determines truth? If you get to determine it, well, it's going to be like a, a life like a kaleidoscope for you. You, know, you used to turn them, and it was never the same. It just kept changing as you turned it. In my own lifetime, I've seen things upend that you could never even imagine. It's the word of God that we follow. That's what he's saying. Let the Lord of peace give them peace. The Lord be with you. I write this in my own hands. Follow what I'm saying. And then the last thing he tells us is grace. You know, he says in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, grace is a funny little term, right? We, we throw it about. We don't really understand it, I think. I, I definitely think we misvalue it. The grace of our Lord Jesus. When you think grace of Jesus, you think unmerited favor. You, the Christian here, if you're a Christian, you have been just recipients of what was not to be yours. But it is. Unmerited. You've not just been given physical life, you've now been given spiritual life, which is forgiveness and reconciliation, redemption, adoption. Not just that, you've also been given grace to sustain you in faith, to sanctify you, to change you. And you need grace to finish well. You won't finish well without grace. Like air to the body, so is grace to the Christian. You can't make it without it. And he says, grace be with you. He wants us to live in light of the grace. Notice, too, that he says, grace be with you all. So if you were to look back at the last chapter in the first letter, he says exactly the same thing, but he just says, grace be with you. He doesn't say with you all. But here he adds all. Why? Why would he add all? Well, I think because coming out of that discipline, even the broken sinner in the church that needs to rip, grace is still there for you. You don't get so broken, you don't partake in his grace anymore. Even when you're broken, you don't have to clean yourself up to get the grace again. You need the grace to get clean. It's for all, you all. Do you recognize the need that you have for grace? You know, when I hear uh, people will often say, yeah, I've been really dry for a few years. I haven't connected with God, and I don't know what's up. It's just we're out of sync. We're not working together. It's just not... Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's the church, maybe it's my friendships, maybe it's my job. And, and I've just started to say, what have you been doing to seek grace? You know, Paul says, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He said, I worked harder than any of them, but it was the grace of God that, it, that was at work within me. We almost think that we need grace to be saved, but then we got it from there. And now through your exercising of Christian disciplines, you're going to be there on your own. It's a both and, people. We're asking, God, give me grace. When was the last time you said, God, give me grace to not sin in this repeated area of sin in my life? Uh, God, would you give me grace that I can love this person that is so awkward and uncomfortable for me? Can you give me grace to reach out to the people? I, I feel so scared 
you know, to meet new people, would you give me grace to be able to speak to them? See, grace is absolutely necessary for us to finish well in life. You need grace. I need grace far more desperately than I think we recognize. That's why he ends with it. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all to the end. May grace be with you all. So here, Paul's final words. They're beautiful words. May the Lord of peace give you peace. May the Lord be with you. I sign this with my own hand. Follow these words. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Will you seek his grace with me? You know, sometimes I, I see folks who have been in the faith a long time, and they kind of begin to coast at the end. It is harder in many ways to be a Christian as you get older. There are more difficulties that you don't face when you're younger. Different difficulties, I would say. And, I mean, I've even meet some new Christians who speak of their parents who, yeah, not really plugged in at church anymore, not really doing this anymore, kind of hunkering down with their own friends and not being as involved in discipleship anymore. It breaks my heart. I think they've missed the meaning of grace, that they need grace to finish well. We need grace. So let's just take a moment now and ask God for this, for this grace and this peace and his presence and, and a willful heart that obeys. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.